Part Four of the History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Three by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The moment had at last arrived when more than ordinary satisfaction was to be done to the wounded pride of the Duke of Friedland. Fate itself had been his avenger, and an unbroken chain of disasters, which had assailed Austria from the day of his dismissal, had wrung from the Emperor the humiliating confession that with this general he had lost his right arm. Every defeat of his troops opened afresh this wound. Every town which he lost revived in the mind of the deceived monarch the memory of his own weakness and ingratitude. It would have been well for him if, in the offended general, he had only lost a leader of his troops and a defender of his dominions, but he was destined to find in him an enemy, and the most dangerous of all, since he was the least armed against the stroke of treason. Removed from the theater of war, and condemned to irksome inaction while his rivals gathered laurels on the field of glory, the haughty duke had beheld these changes of fortune with affected composure, and concealed under a glittering and theatrical pomp the dark designs of his restless genius. Torn by burning passions within, while all without bespoke calmness and indifference, he brooded over projects of ambition and revenge, and slowly but surely advanced towards his end. All that he owed to the emperor was effaced from his mind. What he himself had done for the emperor was imprinted in burning characters in his memory. To his insatiable thirst for power, the emperor's ingratitude was welcome, as it seemed to tear in pieces the record of past favors, to absolve him from every obligation towards his former benefactor. In the disguise of a righteous retaliation, the projects dictated by his ambition now appeared to him just and pure. In proportion as the external circle of his operations was narrowed, the world of hope expanded before him, and his dreamy imagination reveled in boundless projects which, in any mind but such as his, madness alone could have given birth to. His services had raised him to the proudest height which it was possible for a man by his own efforts to attain. Fortune had denied him nothing which the subject and the citizen could lawfully enjoy. Till the moment of his dismissal, his demands had met with no refusal, his ambition had met with no check. But the blow which, at the Diet of Ratisbon, humbled him, showed him the difference between original and deputed power, the distance between the subject and his sovereign. Roused from the intoxication of his own greatness by this sudden reverse of fortune, he compared the authority which he had possessed with that which had deprived him of it, and his ambition marked the steps which it had yet to surmount upon the ladder of fortune. From the moment he had so bitterly experienced the weight of sovereign power, his efforts were directed to attain it for himself. The wrong which he himself had suffered made him a robber. Had he not been outraged by injustice, he might have obediently moved in his orbit round the majesty of the throne, satisfied with the glory of being the brightest of its satellites. It was only when violently forced from its sphere that his wandering star threw in disorder the system to which it belonged, and came in destructive collision with its sun. Gustavus Adolphus had overrun the north of Germany. One place after another was lost, and at Leipzig the flower of the Austrian army had fallen. The intelligence of this defeat soon reached the ears of Wallenstein, who, in the retired obscurity of a private station in Prague, 
contemplated from a calm distance the tumult of war. The news, which filled the breasts of the Roman Catholics with dismay, announced to him the return of greatness and fortune. For him was Gustavus Adolphus laboring. Scarce had the king begun to gain reputation by his exploits, when Wallenstein lost not a moment to court his friendship, and to make common cause with this successful enemy of Austria. The banished Count Thurn, who had long entered the service of Sweden, undertook to convey Wallenstein's congratulations to the king, and to invite him to a close alliance with the duke. Wallenstein required fifteen thousand men from the king, and with these, and the troops he himself engaged to raise, he undertook to conquer Bohemia and Moravia, to surprise Vienna, and drive his master the emperor before him into Italy. Welcome as was this unexpected proposition, its extravagant promises were naturally calculated to excite suspicion. Gustavus Adolphus was too good a judge of merit to reject with coldness the offers of one who might be so important a friend. But when Wallenstein, encouraged by the favorable reception of his first message, renewed it after the Battle of Breitenfeld, and pressed for a decisive answer, the prudent monarch hesitated to trust his reputation to the chimerical projects of so daring an adventurer, and to commit so large a force to the honesty of a man who felt no shame in openly avowing himself a traitor. He excused himself, therefore, on the plea of the weakness of his army which, if diminished by so large a contingent, would certainly suffer in its march through the empire, and thus perhaps by excess of caution lost an opportunity of putting an immediate end to the war. He afterwards endeavored to renew the negotiation, but the favorable moment was past, and Wallenstein's offended pride never forgave the first neglect. But the king's hesitation perhaps only accelerated the breach, which their characters made inevitable sooner or later. Both framed by nature to give laws, not to receive them, they could not long have cooperated in an enterprise which eminently demanded mutual submission and sacrifices. Wallenstein was nothing where he was not everything. He must either act with unlimited power, or not at all. So cordially, too, did Gustavus dislike control, that he had almost renounced his advantageous alliance with France, because it threatened to fetter his own independent judgment. Wallenstein was lost to a party if he could not lead. The latter was, if possible, still less disposed to obey the instructions of another. If the pretensions of a rival would be so irksome to the Duke of Friedland in the conduct of combined operations, in the division of the spoil, they would be insupportable. The proud monarch might condescend to accept the assistance of a rebellious subject against the emperor, and to reward his valuable service with regal munificence, but he never could so far lose sight of his own dignity and the majesty of royalty as to bestow the recompense which the extravagant ambition of Wallenstein demanded and requite an act of treason, however useful, with a crown. In him, therefore, even if all Europe should tacitly acquiesce, Wallenstein had reason to expect the most decided and formidable opponent to his views on the Bohemian crown, and in all Europe he was the only one who could enforce his opposition. Constituted dictator in Germany by Wallenstein himself, he might turn his army against him, and consider himself bound by no obligations to one who was himself a traitor. There was no room for a Wallenstein under such an ally, and it was apparently this conviction, and not any supposed designs upon the imperial throne, that he alluded to when, after the death of the King of Sweden, he exclaimed, 
it is well for him and me that he is gone. The German Empire does not require two such leaders. His first scheme of revenge on the House of Austria had indeed failed, but the purpose itself remained unalterable. The choice of means alone was changed. What he had failed in effecting with the King of Sweden, he hoped to obtain with less difficulty and more advantage from the Elector of Saxony. Him he was as certain of being able to bend to his views, as he had always been doubtful of Gustavus Adolphus. Having always maintained a good understanding with his old friend Arnheim, he now made use of him to bring about an alliance with Saxony, by which he hoped to render himself equally formidable to the Emperor and the King of Sweden. He had reason to expect that a scheme which, if successful, would deprive the Swedish monarch of his influence in Germany, would be welcomed by the Elector of Saxony who he knew was jealous of the power and offended at the lofty pretensions of Gustavus Adolphus. If he succeeded in separating Saxony from the Swedish alliance, and in establishing conjointly with that power a third party in the empire, the fate of the war would be placed in his hand, and by this single step he would succeed in gratifying his revenge against the emperor, revenging the neglect of the Swedish monarch, and on the ruin of both, raising the edifice of his own greatness. But whatever course he might follow in the prosecution of his designs, he could not carry them into effect without an army entirely devoted to him. Such a force could not be secretly raised without its coming to the knowledge of the imperial court, where it would naturally excite suspicion, and thus frustrate his design at the very outset. From the army, too, the rebellious purposes for which it was destined must be concealed till the very moment of execution, since it could scarcely be expected that they would at once be prepared to listen to the voice of a traitor and serve against their legitimate sovereign. Wallenstein, therefore, must raise it publicly and in the name of the emperor, and be placed at its head with unlimited authority by the emperor himself. But how could this be accomplished otherwise than by his being appointed to the command of the army and entrusted with full powers to conduct the war? Yet neither his pride nor his interest permitted him to sue in person for this post, and as a supplicant to accept from the favor of an emperor at a limited power, when an unlimited authority might be extorted from his fears. In order to make himself the master of the terms on which he would resume the command of the army, his course was to wait until the post should be forced upon him. This was the advice he received from Arnheim, and this the end for which he labored with profound policy and restless activity. Convinced that extreme necessity would alone conquer the emperor's irresolution, and render powerless the opposition of his bitter enemies Bavaria and Spain, he henceforth occupied himself in promoting the success of the enemy, and in increasing the embarrassments of his master. It was apparently by his instigation and advice that the Saxons, when on the route to Lusatia and Silesia, had turned their march towards Bohemia and overrun that defenseless kingdom, where their rapid conquests was partly the result of his measures. By the fears which he had affected to entertain, he paralyzed every effort at resistance, and his precipitate retreat caused the delivery of the capital to the enemy. At a conference with the Saxon general, which was held at Konitz under the pretext of negotiating for a peace, the seal was put to the conspiracy, and the conquest of Bohemia was the first fruits of this mutual understanding. While Wallenstein was thus personally endeavoring to heighten the perplexities of Austria, 
and while the rapid movements of the Swedes upon the Rhine effectually promoted his designs, his friends and bribed adherents in Vienna uttered loud complaints of the public calamities, and represented the dismissal of the general as the sole cause of all these misfortunes. Had Wallenstein commanded, matters would never have come to this, exclaimed a thousand voices, while their opinions found supporters even in the emperor's privy council. Their repeated remonstrances were not needed to convince the embarrassed emperor of his general's merits and of his own error. His dependence on Bavaria and the League had soon become insupportable, but hitherto this dependence permitted him not to show his distrust or irritate the elector by the recall of Wallenstein. But now, when his necessities grew every day more pressing, and the weakness of Bavaria more apparent, he could no longer hesitate to listen to the friends of the duke, and to consider their overtures for his restoration to command. The immense riches Wallenstein possessed, the universal reputation he enjoyed, the rapidity with which six years before he had assembled an army of forty thousand men, the little expense at which he had maintained this formidable force, the actions he had performed at its head, and lastly, the zeal and fidelity he had displayed for his master's honor still lived in the emperor's recollection, and made Wallenstein seem to be the ablest instrument to restore the balance between the belligerent powers, to save Austria, and preserve the Catholic religion. However sensibly the imperial pride might feel the humiliation in being forced to make so unequivocal an admission of past errors and present necessity, however painful it was to descend to humble entreaties from the height of imperial command, however doubtful the fidelity of so deeply injured and implacable a character, however loudly and urgently the Spanish minister and the elector of Bavaria protested against this step, the immediate pressure of necessity finally overcame every other consideration, and the friends of the duke were empowered to consult him on the subject and to hold out the prospect of his restoration. Informed of all that was transacted in the emperor's cabinet to his advantage, Wallenstein possessed sufficient self-command to conceal his inward triumph and to assume the mask of indifference. The moment of vengeance was at last come, and his proud heart exulted in the prospect of repaying with interest the injuries of the emperor. With artful eloquence, he expatiated upon the happy tranquility of a private station, which had blessed him since his retirement from a political stage. Too long, he said, had he tasted the pleasures of ease and independence, to sacrifice to the vain phantom of glory the uncertain favor of princes. All his desire of power and distinction were extinct. Tranquility and repose were now the sole object of his wishes. The better to conceal his real impatience, he declined the emperor's invitation to the court, but at the same time, to facilitate the negotiations, came to Znaim in Moravia. At first, it was proposed to limit the authority to be entrusted to him, by the presence of a superior, in order by this expedient to silence the objections of the elector of Bavaria. The imperial deputies, Questenberg and Wurttemberg, who as old friends of the duke had been employed in this delicate mission, were instructed to propose that the king of Hungary should remain with the army and learn the art of war under Wallenstein. But the very mention of his name threatened to put a period to the whole negotiation. No, never, exclaimed Wallenstein, while I submit to a colleague in my office. No, not even if it were God himself with whom I should have to share my command. But even when this obnoxious point was given up, 
Prince Egenberg, the Emperor's minister and favorite, who had always been the steady friend and zealous champion of Wallenstein, and was therefore expressly sent to him, exhausted his eloquence in vain to overcome the pretended reluctance of the Duke. The Emperor, he admitted, had in Wallenstein thrown away the most costly jewel in his crown, but unwillingly and compulsorily only had he taken the step, which he had since deeply repented of, while his esteem for the duke had remained unaltered, his favor for him undiminished. Of these sentiments he now gave the most decisive proof, by reposing unlimited confidence in his fidelity and capacity to repair the mistakes of his predecessors, and to change the whole aspect of affairs. It would be great and noble to sacrifice his just indignation to the good of his country, dignified and worthy of him to refute the evil calumny of his enemies by the double warmth of his zeal. The victory over himself, concluded the prince, would crown his other unparalleled services to the empire and render him the greatest man of his age. These humiliating confessions and flattering assurances seemed at last to disarm the anger of the duke but not before he had disburdened his heart of his reproaches against the emperor, pompously dwelt upon his own services, and humbled to the utmost the monarch who solicited his assistance, did he condescend to listen to the attractive proposals of the minister. As if he yielded entirely to the force of their arguments, he condescended with a haughty reluctance to that which was the most ardent wish of his heart, and deigned to favor the ambassadors with a ray of hope. But far from putting an end to the emperor's embarrassments by giving at once a full and unconditional consent, he only acceded to a part of his demands that he might exalt the value of that which still remained, and was of most importance. He accepted the command, but only for three months, merely for the purpose of raising, but not of leading an army. He wished only to show his power and ability in his organization, and to display it before the eyes of the emperor, the greatness of that assistance, which he still retained in his hands. Convinced that an army raised by his name alone would, if deprived of its creator, soon sink again into nothing, he intended it to serve only as a decoy to draw more important concessions from his master. And yet Ferdinand congratulated himself, even in having gained so much as he had. Wallenstein did not long delay to fulfill those promises which all Germany regarded as chimerical and which Gustavus Adolphus had considered as extravagant. But the foundation for the present enterprise had been long laid, and he now only put in motion the machinery which many years had been prepared for the purpose. Scarcely had the news spread of Wallenstein's levies, when from every quarter of the Austrian monarchy crowds of soldiers repaired to try their fortunes under this experienced general. Many who had before fought under his standards had been admiring eyewitnesses of his great actions, and experienced his magnanimity, came forward from their retirement to share with him a second time both booty and glory. The greatness of the pay he promised attracted thousands, and the plentiful supplies the soldier was likely to enjoy at the cost of the peasant was to the latter an irresistible inducement to embrace the military life at once, rather than be the victim of its oppression. All the Austrian provinces were compelled to assist in the equipment. No class was exempt from taxation, no dignity or privilege from capitation. The Spanish court, as well as the King of Hungary, agreed to contribute a considerable sum. The ministers made large presents, while Wallenstein himself advanced $200,000 from his own income to hasten the armament. 
the poorer officers he supported out of his own revenues and by his own example by brilliant promotions and still more brilliant promises he induced all who were able to raise troops at their own expense whoever raised a corps at his own cost was to be its commander in the appointment of officers religion made no difference riches bravery and experience were more regarded than creed by this uniform treatment of different religious sects and still more by his express declaration that his present levy had nothing to do with religion the protestant subjects of the empire were tranquilized and reconciled to bear their share of the public burdens the duke at the same time did not omit to treat in his own name with foreign states for men and money he prevailed on the duke of lorraine a second time to espouse the cause of the emperor poland was urged to supply him with cossacks and italy with warlike necessaries before the three months were expired the army which was assembled in moravia amounted to no less than forty thousand men chiefly drawn from the unconquered parts of bohemia from moravia silesia and the german provinces of the house of austria what to everyone had appeared impracticable wallenstein to the astonishment of all europe had in a short time effected the charm of his name his treasures and his genius had assembled thousands in arms where before austria had only looked for hundreds furnished even to superfluity with all necessaries commanded by experienced officers and inflamed by enthusiasm which assured itself of victory this newly created army only awaited the signal of their leader to show themselves by the bravery of their deeds worthy of his choice the duke had fulfilled his promise and the troops were ready to take the field he then retired and left to the emperor to choose a commander but it would have been as easy to raise a second army like the first as to find any other commander for it than wallenstein this promising army the last hope of the emperor was nothing but an illusion as soon as the charm was dissolved which had called it into existence by wallenstein had it been raised and without him it sank like a creation of magic into its original nothingness its officers were either bound to him as his debtors or as his creditors closely connected with his interests and the preservation of his power the regiments he had entrusted to his own relations creatures and favorites he and he alone could discharge to the troops the extravagant promises by which they had been lured into his service his pledged word was the only security on which their bold expectations rested a blind reliance on his omnipotence the only tie which linked together in one common life and soul the various impulses of their zeal there was an end of the good fortune of each individual if he retired who alone was the voucher of its fulfillment however little wallenstein was serious in his refusal he successfully employed this means to terrify the emperor into consenting to his extravagant conditions the progress of the enemy every day increased the pressure of the emperor's difficulties while the remedy was also close at hand a word from him might terminate the general embarrassment prince egenberg at length received orders for the third and last time at any cost and sacrifice to induce his friend wallenstein to accept the command he found him at his name in moravia pompously surrounded by the troops the possession of which he made the emperor so earnestly to long for as a suppliant did the haughty subject receive the deputy of his sovereign he never could trust he said to a restoration to command which he owed to the emperor's necessities and not to his sense of justice he was now courted 
because the danger had reached its height, and safety was hoped for from his arm only, but his successful services would soon cause the servant to be forgotten, and the return of security would bring back renewed ingratitude. If he deceived the expectations formed of him, his long-earned renown would be forfeited, even if he fulfilled them, his repose and happiness must be sacrificed. Soon would envy be excited anew, and the dependent monarch would not hesitate a second time to make an offering of convenience to a servant whom he could now dispense with. Better for him at once, and voluntarily, to resign a post from which sooner or later the intrigues of his enemies would expel him. Security and content were to be found in the bosom of private life, and nothing but the wish to oblige the emperor had induced him reluctantly enough to relinquish for a time his blissful repose. Tired of this long farce, the minister at last assumed a serious tone, and threatened the obstinate duke with the emperor's resentment if he persisted in his refusal. Low enough had the imperial dignity, he added, stooped already, and yet, instead of exciting his magnanimity by its condescension, had only flattered his pride and increased his obstinacy. If this sacrifice had been made in vain, he would not answer, but that the suppliant might be converted into the sovereign, and that the monarch might not avenge his injured dignity on his rebellious subject. However greatly Ferdinand may have erred, the emperor at least had a claim to obedience. The man might be mistaken, but the monarch could not confess his error. If the Duke of Friedland had suffered by an unjust decree, he might yet be recompensed for all his losses. The wound which it had itself inflicted, the hand of majesty might heal. If he asked security for his person and his dignities, the emperor's equity would refuse him no reasonable demand. Majesty contemned, admitted not of any atonement. Disobedience to its commands cancelled the most brilliant services. The emperor required his services, and as emperor he demanded them. Whatever price Wallenstein might set upon them, the emperor would readily agree to, but he demanded obedience, or the weight of his indignation could crush the refractory servant. Wallenstein, whose extensive possessions within the Austrian monarchy were momentarily exposed to the power of the emperor, was keenly sensible that this was no idle threat. Yet it was not fear that at last overcame his affected reluctance. This imperious tone of itself was to his mind a plain proof of the weakness and despair which dictated it, while the emperor's readiness to yield all his demands convinced him that he had attained the summit of his wishes. He now made a show of yielding to the persuasions of Eggenberg, and left him in order to write down the conditions on which he accepted the command. Not without apprehension did the minister receive the writings, in which the proudest of subjects had prescribed laws to the proudest of sovereigns. But however little confidence he had in the moderation of his friend, the extravagant contents of his writing surpassed even his worst expectations. Wallenstein required the uncontrolled command over all the German armies of Austria and Spain, with unlimited powers to reward and punish. Neither the King of Hungary nor the Emperor himself were to appear in the army, still less to exercise any active authority over it. No commission in the army, no pension or letter of grace was to be granted by the emperor without Wallenstein's approval. All the conquests and confiscations that should take place were to be placed entirely at Wallenstein's disposal, to the exclusion of every other tribunal. For his ordinary pay, an imperial hereditary estate was to be assigned him, with another of the conquered estates within the empire 
for his extraordinary expenses. Every Austrian province was to be open to him if he required it in case of retreat. He further demanded the assurance of the possession of the Duchy of Mecklenburg in the event of a future peace, and a formal and timely intimation if it should be deemed necessary a second time to deprive him of the command. In vain the minister entreated him to moderate his demands, which, if granted, would deprive the emperor of all authority over his own troops, and make him absolutely dependent on his general. The value placed on his services had been too plainly manifested to prevent him dictating the price at which they were to be purchased. If the pressure of circumstances compelled the emperor to grant these demands, it was more than a mere feeling of haughtiness and desire of revenge which induced the duke to make them. His plans of rebellion were formed to their success, every one of the conditions for which Wallenstein stipulated in this treaty with the court was indispensable. Those plans required that the emperor should be deprived of all authority in Germany, and be placed at the mercy of his general, and this object would be obtained the moment Ferdinand subscribed the required conditions. The use which Wallenstein intended to make of his army, widely different indeed from that for which it was entrusted to him, brooked not of a divided power, and still less of an authority superior to his own. To be the sole master of the will of his troops, he must also be the sole master of their destinies, insensibly to supplant his sovereign, and to transfer permanently to his own person the rights of sovereignty, which were only lent to him for a time by a higher authority. He must cautiously keep the latter out of view of the army. Hence his obstinate refusal to allow any prince of the House of Austria to be present with the army. The liberty of free disposal of all the conquered and confiscated estates in the empire would also afford him fearful means of purchasing dependence and instruments of his plans, and of acting the dictator in Germany more absolutely than ever any emperor did in time of peace. By the right to use any of the Austrian provinces as a place of refuge in case of need, he had full power to hold the emperor a prisoner by means of his own forces, and within his own dominions, to exhaust the strength and resources of these countries, and to undermine the power of Austria in its very foundation. Whatever might be the issue, he had equally secured his own advantage by the conditions he had extorted from the emperor. If circumstances proved favorable to his daring project, this treaty with the emperor facilitated its execution. If, on the contrary, the course of things ran counter to it, it would at least afford him a brilliant compensation for the failure of his plans. But how could he consider an agreement valid which was extorted from his sovereign and based upon treason? How could he hope to bind the emperor by a written agreement in the face of a law which condemned to death every one who should have the presumption to impose conditions upon him? But this criminal was the most indispensable man in the empire, and Ferdinand, well practiced in dissimulation, granted him for the present all he required. At last, then, the imperial army had found a commander-in-chief worthy of the name. Every other authority in the army, even that of the emperor himself, ceased from the moment Wallenstein assumed the commander's baton, and every act was invalid which did not proceed from him. From the banks of the Danube to those of the Weser and the Oder was felt the life-giving dawning of this new star, a new spirit seemed to inspire the troops of the emperor, a new epoch of the war began. The papists form fresh hopes, the Protestant beholds with anxiety the changed course of affairs. 
the greater the price at which the services of the new general had been purchased, the greater justly were the expectations from those which the court of the emperor entertained. But the duke was in no hurry to fulfill these expectations. Already in the vicinity of Bohemia, and at the head of a formidable force, he had but to show himself there, in order to overpower the exhausted force of the Saxons, and brilliantly to commence his new career by the reconquest of that kingdom but contented with harassing his enemy with indecisive skirmishes of his croats he abandoned the best part of that kingdom to be plundered and moved calmly forward in pursuit of his own selfish plans his design was not to conquer the saxons but to unite with them exclusively occupied with this important object he remained inactive in the hope of securing more surely by means of negotiation he left no expedient untried to detach this prince from the Swedish alliance, and Ferdinand himself, ever inclined to an accommodation with this prince, approved of this proceeding. But the great debt which Saxony owed to Sweden was as yet too fresh remembered to allow of any such act of perfidy. And even had the elector been disposed to yield to the temptation, the equivocal character of Wallenstein and the bad character of Austrian policy precluded any reliance in the integrity of its promises. Notorious already as a treacherous statesman, he met not with faith upon the very occasion when, perhaps, he intended to act honestly, and moreover was denied by circumstances the opportunity of proving the sincerity of his intentions by the disclosure of his real motives. He therefore unwillingly resolved to extort by force of arms what he could not obtain by negotiation. Suddenly assembling his troops, he appeared before Prague ere the Saxons had time to advance to its relief. After a short resistance, the treachery of some Capuchins opened the gates to one of his regiments, and the garrison, who had taken refuge in the citadel, soon laid down their arms upon disgraceful conditions. Master of the capital, he had hoped to carry on more successfully his negotiations at the Saxon court. But even while he was renewing his proposals to Arnheim, he did not hesitate to give them weight by striking a decisive blow. He hastened to seize the narrow passes between Ossig and Perna, with a view of cutting off the retreat of the Saxons into their own country. But the rapidity of Arnheim's operations fortunately extricated them from the danger. After the retreat of this general, Egra and Lotmeritz, the last strongholds of the Saxons, surrendered to the conqueror, and the whole kingdom was restored to its legitimate sovereign in less time than it had been lost. End of part four.